That's what I got to say. Ready, set, sit. Yes. That song is going to be in your head for the rest of the week. I mean, I've heard it all week long. And so when I hear it, they have all these little dance moves that go with it. And it was fabulous. It was a really good week. I think the best thing about VBS that happens is when the preschool leaves from the summer, the church gets kind of quiet. And so for those of us who have to study during the week or kind of be in the building for the week, it's a different place when the building's quiet. But when VBS is here, the kids come back to life. And we call them the littles. We lovingly call them the littles around here. But when the littles are on fire and you hand them, you know, candy and sugar and chalk, the littles just, they bring life in such a way that you're like, okay, we're upstairs working. We have all these serious adult things to do. But it's like, what a joy to be in the presence of the Lord with some other littles. We were talking today about some of the weird things in life. It's like my, my, my namesake, Adam, he's one and a half years old, and we're trying to teach him how to pray, right? So he only knows a few words, but when he, you know, if he can pray and he says a couple of gobbledygook words, it's like, what a blessing, right? And Tom's saying, well, my four-year-old's actually starting to pray, and it's not so much a blessing because when she starts to pray, she thanks God for everything that happened in the day. And I'm like, well, what, what is that actually telling us? Like, I think the littles are trying to teach us, right? The littles are actually figuring something out that I think we've kind of lost as adults. Like, we've all grown up and we've figured it all out. But the littles want to thank God for the carousel, you know, that went around and around today. They don't care that it cost us $4 on a credit card because they don't take cash. See, I've been there. I tried to pay the lady cash and she wouldn't take it. It made me very frustrated that I had to give a credit card to do it. I'm like, what is this credit card scam for littles riding... It didn't matter. The littles went around and around, and it was a glorious day. And thank God for that. You know what? I pray this morning, if you're too serious for your adult self, maybe this afternoon you need to go on a littles walk. Maybe go get little today. Get a donut, get an otter pop, or get some kind of astro pop or something. The orange one with the vanilla on the inside, right? We, we actually had those. They were called ice cream trucks. They would come through our neighborhoods, right? They weren't selling drugs or peddling, you know, pornography or whatever the world's old. We had a different world. And when the lights flickered, we ran and we made it home and it was all good and we survived. But man, I tell you what, this morning the littles were pumping me up. And thank you, Sherry. Thank you, volunteers. Some of you volunteers I saw for the first time in the church. I won't call you all out. I know you guys how, whatever. But I mean, as I walked around from room to room and saw the volunteers, you know, I, I saw you. I see you. And I see the time and energy. 25 volunteers is what it took to run this VBS. Church, we haven't had 25 volunteers in four and a half years. Okay? So if God's firing you up to do something, then praise God. Because we need you, like Sherry said, we need you. And it's only going to get done if the church rises up. So thank you for doing that. So ready, set, move, fabulous stuff. Summer normalcy is what we need. Yesterday was also an interesting day, too, in that we said goodbye to a friend. We said goodbye until we see you again. Uh, one of our elders has passed and moved on and had the chance in this church service to, to just celebrate life. And I got a chance to sit in the back and watch a service for someone whose life was so full of Jesus that not one person could speak about this man regardless if they were religious or not, right? Now, one person could speak about our elder, John Whiteman, Marley's beloved better half, without speaking the name of Jesus. And I couldn't help but think, what a good life. What a life to live that no matter what somebody has to say about you at your celebration of life service, it just reeked of Jesus. And I loved it. Somebody said something like, John had figured out how to drink a beer and be a Christian. And that made one of the guys who was here, who was not from the religious side of the event, think there is a way that you guys can talk to us, right? There is a way that we can find a happy medium and say, yeah, because wasn't Jesus' first miracle involving some kind of liquid refreshment, right? We got some woo-hoos up here for liquid refreshment, sorry. So it's not like it can be just bad. It doesn't just have to be bad because it's that. There's a way that we've kind of created this whole thing. And so I was just really blessed. And I caught Marley on the way out. And I just really felt like, you know what? God, God did us right to see that in John's life. Because what we're going to find out today in Acts 8, 1 through 8, is it's not how much about how we live. I think there's more to be saying about what happens when we die. Because it's been appointed for us to be born. And it's been appointed for us to be home with the Lord. But what they have to say about you when you're done 
will say much more than what you said in your life. And the reality was for, for John in this particular instance, his life made just as much of an impact in his work because they all wore kilts, which was this interesting component that none of us knew yesterday, that besides being a stout beer drinker, that he wore a kilt to celebrate his Scottish heritage, which allowed some bagpipes to be played yesterday, which was also quite riveting as well. But in regards to respect for him, his employees, the employees of his business, they wore kilts. And the wives of the men who wearing kilts bought um, dresses the same kind of pattern, and they all were in unity to say how much that man meant to them. That's a good life. And I was blessed in the end, too, to celebrate with a wedding for some dear friends of ours and people that we had a chance to be blessed with. And just to see the pendulum swinging on both sides, the joy of a young couple whose overwhelming exuberance to be married is this constant smile that goes on for two and a half, three hours, and the frustration of life to realize that someone we love is no longer with us, and yet somehow we're supposed to get up to this morning, put on our game face, and come celebrate with the Lord. So let me pray and encourage you this morning that I believe today's message is very specific. Seven, eight verses, but I believe it's very specific, and I actually believe there's someone today that needs a component of this message. And so I'm going to pray specifically for you that God would use this message to speak encouragement from someone that paid the ultimate price, but he paid it in such a way that it could carry on and pass the baton. So, Father God, we come before you this morning and we know that we are simply jars of clay. Yesterday was a beautiful reminder of how that, how that plays out in life. And in some capacities, we, we stand before you and we say, why? You know, why did the good have to die young? Why do you take the good ones? And then I think, because that's what heaven is. It's the good ones. It's the ones that have shown us the way. And that there is something in life that's super important that we need to pass on. And I pray right now for Marley and the entire family, for every conversation that happened in this building yesterday, Father, that you would so wonderfully and magnificently use the taking home of that saint, Father, that you would like this message today. Explain to us something about life, that even though we don't see it, even though we don't know it, even though sometimes we can't understand it, it doesn't stop the kingdom of God from moving forward. I also thank you for VBS just a little, man, they've been great this week, just screaming and joyous and happy and exuberant and the way they treat each other. They don't even know each other and they're so happy to meet other people, Father. I pray that you would restore that simple joy to us this morning as we come to study your word and hear from you. We do these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So I'm in Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to get to the reading because I have some really good dissection that I'm looking forward to. So if you're with me, I'm in... Uh, Starting in verse 1, and I think I'm reading from NASB today. If not, it'll be NIV, but light's not working and glasses aren't working. So here we go. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. So as we finished last week, we were reminded that Stephen, the first deacon, has stepped up to the church to meet the need of feeding the Hellenistic widows. A simple task. The widows needed food. There was some form of distribution. It wasn't happening appropriately. The favoritism word went out. People said, hey, we don't want that in the church. It's going to cause division. Would somebody rise up and meet the need that the church has? People get together and realize this would be a great opportunity to put some guys together that could kind of maybe champion this. Seven guys volunteer, wise in stature. Stephen leads them. And for doing this task, God promotes him to such a degree that he ends up having the opportunity to stand before the Sanhedrin, the, the highest form of rulers. And for that, they've decided that the, the Jesus he's talking about and the way that he was talking about him was worthy of death. And so they have just put him to death. They have just stoned him. And the individual that was responsible for that action, an individual named Saul, which we're definitely going to be learning more about in the next few weeks, approves of it. And because of that, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. Two, some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Saul, okay, the individual responsible for Stephen's death, but Saul, he began ravaging the church, entering into house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them into prison. Therefore, therefore those who had been scattered, they went throughout places preaching the world, preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind. 
of what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case, many unclean spirits were, being, were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed or limped on crutches were healed, so that there was much rejoicing in the city. So it all kind of starts with this opening line, the idea that Saul, okay, an individual which we don't know much about yet, but in the next few chapters we're going to learn a lot about because Saul is going to become Paul. And what we're going to learn about Paul, especially as Paul continues to tell us more things about himself, is that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay? So today, I guess we would say he's an American of Americans, right? He's wearing the flag. He only has red, white, and blue. He is everything that is anything about his Judaism. And so for him, the fervency of what he has to protect Judaism is at the very highest regard, so that the stoning of someone who's blaspheming against his beloved Judaism to him is actually a way of showing honor and respect. This is really interesting to me because one of the things that we're going to notice about Saul, who's not Paul yet, he's still Saul throughout this component, is that God is going to make a direct path to someone whose sole purpose is disdain for the church. Now, disdain is not a word that we're using all the time, but I felt like I needed to say that because it's the sense of just overwhelming hatred for something. Like, I, when you disdain something, there's a the sense that just seeing something non-Judaism-based, it just makes him feel like, I need to get rid of that. And to the point he's willing to get rid of that, he's willing to have somebody killed. I don't think he felt any regret about it. But Jesus is using this incredible man, Stephen. Stephen, so that in the final words of Stephen's life, he's not saying things that would discourage people from the faith that he has lived. He's literally speaking in almost a similar dialect as we discussed last week. Remember, he reverses the order of what Jesus said. Forgive them, not, forgive them Father, for what, they, for what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And then into your hands do I commit myself. He reverses the order, but he basically says what Jesus said on the cross. And to that degree, Saul hears that. And even though it's the beginning of Saul's kind of path to destroy the church, Saul, Saul has to realize something. The word of God is now reached inside of him. And the Bible has a word called goad. Any of you use this word? I got some cool words this week for you. Goad, anyone used a goad lately? Yeah. A goad is a sharpened stick. It's what you would use to move animals. So you would goad an animal. And so this kind of term where uh, parents don't goad your children, right? The idea of provoking or goading something. This is, so this is what it is. And that goad, the Lord officially sharpens the stick on Saul. And the goad for who he is and how he's living hits him for the first time. Great persecution is the result of this, okay? All the church has done is do good. All the church has done is be a blessing. All the church is trying to do is give people a better way to live. And the results of all their goodness is great persecution is about to begin. Church, before we even go any further, let's take a deep breath and realize something. Sometimes we feel like, Today, somehow, our generation is the lucky generation, and we feel strongly more about 2023 right now that the Lord's coming today. It must be, because there's never been more greater persecution there, than there is now. Biblically speaking, every generation in the Bible has felt that same persecution, and every generation has stepped up from the generation before with what was acceptable and how they would goad believers. And every generation has had to realize something. This is not something new. This has been going on from the beginning of time. Persecution has been here from the beginning of time. I love Ecclesiastes 3. It says, In God's hands there is a time and a season for everything under the sun. Okay? If there's a time and a season for everything under the sun, then that means this. If you're building a runway so that planes can land bringing food in for homeless people or starving people or whatever, you should plan on, as well as building the runway, is runway repair. Why? Because as soon as your enemies see that first plane landing and start asking, what's going on over there in Costa Mesa in that little church? Why are they having BBS again? I don't like hearing the littles. I don't want little kids to come to the Lord because little kids that come to the Lord bring that stuff home, okay? And I have none of that in my house. 
You want to mess a house up, send a four-year-old home praying and watch what happens. Far more powerful than any pastor that's going to speak this Sunday. Send your grandkid home praying and watch what a little does. And what happens? They see the runway, they recognize what it means, and then they start talking. Hey, what do you got? I got a bunch of fireworks left over from 4th of July. Costa Mesa, it was illegal. We can dig a hole out there and blow up the runway. Why? If you make enough holes in the runway, they can't land the planes. Ask any war veteran, they'll tell you why are runways the first target in a military base. Can't land planes, can't take off. It grounds everyone, changes everything. Church, we're not just under attack today. This is not a new attack on our runway. Anytime someone gets saved, we had someone get saved in the building a couple months ago. We've had people get baptized. Anytime the gospel is moving forward, the bombs are following the incoming, right? We're trying to do something, and Stephen was trying to do something, and he knew that God was going to use it. So he said, look, what happened in chapter 4 when the church was first going forward and they started to get attacked? They didn't attack back. They didn't. Someone hung a sign. I don't know if you know the person, but someone hung a sign this morning on the 55. It says, Jesus or hell. Okay, that might be true, but that does not help someone who's going to hell, Right? If I'm going to hell and I see that sign, all I'm thinking is, so what? I already knew that. Yeah? Maybe they reverse it. Jesus, you can do whatever you want. Did Jesus at any time in the Bible show us a path like that? No. What they did in chapter 4, they said, okay, we're under attack. Why are we under attack? I don't know. We haven't done anything. We're trying to be a blessing. So what should we do? We're going to pray. How are we going to pray? We are going to pray for boldness to continue to do what's right, regardless of how the world reacts, okay? We don't hang signs up and tell the world they're going to hell, because there's none righteous, not one, so that sign's not for the sinner driving down the freeway, it's for you, it's for me, because none of us are righteous. And when we start telling people that, what we're saying is we love you, but come into our world for us to tell you what it's all about. And that's not what this passage shows us. Because something is going to happen in the next verse, and the word says, and all were scattered. All were scattered except for one group, the apostles. The apostles stay behind. We know that because James, Jesus' brother who didn't believe in him, becomes the founder of the Jerusalem church and establishes a very powerful church. So who was kicked out? Who was left? I found one commentary guy who gave me a little bit of help, so I'm going to go with this. He said the Hellenistic Jews were the ones that were making this path. Stephen, Philip, these guys were trying to take care of the Hellenistic Jews. He believes that all the deacons were sent out. Okay? Remember we talked about deacons and elders a few weeks ago? For those of you not really familiar with church verbiage, there's lots of Christianese verbiage. Deacons do. In this church, the deacons, you get to see the deacons doing women's ministry, men's ministry, Charlie every week, Kelly and Steve serving donuts, people in the worship team, people that are doing ministry, actively doing ministry on the regular. That's deacon. That's deacon ministry, okay? When the church has an end of service and we offer prayer, and sometimes we invite the elders up, the elders eld. Now, basically what the elding mandates is teaching, the leading, okay? And what he's saying here, they're all going to leave except for a specific group, and when they all go, the workers are getting sent out into the field, and something has to be done. What's going to be done? All of a sudden, there's people to do work in the field. They left, including Philip, and all of a sudden, these freedmen who were maybe mad about how things were going on in their, in their, in their temple, they said, you know what, we're going to get rid of all these Hellenistic Jews, and maybe the problem would go away. And I think that works out because Philip actually ends up coming back to Caesarea, and if he left there and they were all scattered, it makes sense that he would return to his home. There is a little confusing here. Do you realize Philip here, the deacon, is not Philip the Apostle, okay? So there's Philip the deacon and Philip the Apostle. Philip the deacon is going to be 6, 8, and 21. 6, 8, and 21. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Let me get back to this other word, scattered. I, I skipped a section there, and I want to get to something else before I get to that. They were all scattered. I said the word scattered, and when I think about the word scattered, I think about something that means the noun, which means the dispersing of seed, Okay, to just scatter seed. And yet when I read this this week, one of the things I realized something is, I don't really feel like there's much random in the Bible. Matter of fact, I don't believe there's anything random about the Bible at all. So I was like, Lord, help me to understand the scattering process. If I throw something into the wind, is it really lost? 
And then I heard the scripture say, who is it that controls the wind? And I'm like, you do, Lord. You control everything. So when you throw it into the wind, is it really scattered? And I said, well, then what is it? Rather than scattered, I thought this. He said, verse 1-8, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now in chapters 8-1, he's repeating the same thing. He's bookending the exact same concept, and that doesn't feel scattered. It feels very specific. And then I started thinking, so what might he actually be saying? I think what he was saying was this. You guys remember these cards? They've been around in the church for a while, maybe two or three years. Your sphere of influence, the idea that you have an oikos, that you have people in your life, people that you're supposed to be sharing with. Rather than scattering to the wind and having no control, I started to think of it more like this. You drop a rock into a pool, and in the explosion of the rock, it sends out a ring. And as that ring moves out, another ring moves out, and another ring moves out, and even though it scatters from the initial contact, the initial explosion, those rings are very systematic in how they move. And they will continue to move from the inward position to the outward position until it covers the entirety of that pool. Then it will rebound and come back to the center. Now, church, this is important because if we think God is random and we think that God saves some and we still don't understand how God works in that, he said, in my Father's house, there's many rooms, okay? He, I, I think there's plenty of room for everyone in heaven. So everyone should have a chance to hear this. So who should we start with? Who, who should we be bringing it first to? I think Jesus is going to use the tragedy of Stephen's life to say the first people that we bring it to is Jerusalem. The first people that we bring it to is Jerusalem. So these cards are back in the back foyer. Jerusalem. This is what I think Jerusalem is. It's the 8 to 15 that God has put in your life. It's the 8 to 15 people that your ministry is already connected to. It's, it's not going to be outside because it has to start inside. If your family does not know who you are and what's important to you, then it's going to make sense that you're going to struggle in taking the word of God out anywhere else. But if you start in Jerusalem, remember the church is based in Jerusalem. This idea that they were introducing Philip as an evangelist is a new term as well, okay? An evangelist means a sent one, someone who's bringing the word. And he's going to be leaving the place where the church started. The church started in Jerusalem because that's where their relationships were. Wherever your relationships are, that's where you should start. Well, how do you start? You start praying about them. So one of the things that I've done with mine it says identify. First thing you do is identify. I wrote down the names of the people that God has placed strategically in my life. Okay? I place this by my door, and every day I walk into work, and every day I sit down at my desk, and I look up. I always recognize the list, and I start by just making a prayer and a conscious effort. Lord, I pray that everyone in your sphere of influence, okay? I, I think me and Pastor Eric, when we were first talking about this, he heard sphere of influence, but I'd like to clarify something. It's not our sphere of influence. It's God's sphere of influence. What ultimately do we have to do with the people that God has placed in our life? Nothing, right? God has placed those people in our life supernaturally. And so now we start in Jerusalem. We start with our home turf and we evangelize them. Now, what's the difference between evangelism and preaching? Okay, because uh, there's evangelists like Billy Graham would be a fabulous reconciliate. My huge, huge blessing for me, Billy Graham. Billy Graham went out, and 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 Billy Graham went out. Because God's call on his life was to evangelize. An evangelist's passion, like I would say my passion is very similar, is salvation. Nothing else matters but salvation. Where a pastor and a teacher, which there's some fabulous pastors and teachers out there, one of their passions is to make sure that the flock is educated, to make sure that the flock, the congregation, is being taught and trained. Both of them serving similar roles to do the same thing to minister to the first group, that home group of 8 to 15 people in Jerusalem. What happens if you do that? At some point, there's going to be some saturation. At some point, you're going to have pretty good traction with your 8 to 15, and you're going to feel like, okay, the ones who should move have moved. The ones who haven't moved, I'm, I'm placing them before the Lord, and I'll wait for the Lord to move in their lives. But some of these other ones, I don't know what God's going to do with them, so I'm just going to hold them up in prayer. Okay, Lord, what's next? Then he gives it to us. The next group Judea. Okay, so from where Jerusalem is, the next ring outside of that is going to be Judea. So who are the people of Judea? 
These are their acquaintances. These are the people that they are doing life with. Maybe these are co-workers or a place that they frequently visit or some place they've been to before. They have some kind of connection, but they don't have that personal relationship. It's a natural ethos of how we can share the Word of God. And they bring the Word of God to them in such a way that they realize something. Blessed are the feet, right? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ. There's this blessing that comes when you bring the word of God to someone. There's this encouragement that comes when you, when you say, Lord, I don't even know why I'm going, but I know that you're asking me to go. So I will bring the good news to these people. May your spirit bless it and use it. I can't help but think about this for every like VBS or any kind the church does an event for that one, 1 Corinthians 9. Becoming all things to all people. For what reason? For the one. Right? So that one person can make a profession of faith. Because how important is one person's profession of faith? The, the angelic realm explodes over one, right? One is, is everything to the Lord, because one, you're not one. Not one of you is one. All of you have at least 8 to 15 that you're intimately and personally involved with, and from that, your rings go out as well. And so one person making a profession of faith, one person making a decision to see Jesus as the Messiah is going to have a natural ripple effect through their world, and it's going to continue to go out. And it doesn't stop in a day, and it doesn't stop in a week, and it doesn't stop in an hour. It keeps going to the ends of the earth, and then it returns. What does he say about that? He says, my word will not return void. So you don't have to think, well, Pastor Jeff, you, you're an evangelist. I'll, I'll give you that. And you're motivated and you're excited and you want to do that. I'm not. I am an introvert and I am quiet. And my ethos is that that would be shocking to me to do that. Okay, but in the same sense, God has called all of us to minister. So to the quiet people that are not in my ethos, because I'm probably going to draw a little more to the people that are a little bit more outward, that want to hear someone come to them, who's speaking to the quiet people? Who's sitting with that quiet person and having a cup of tea and very succinctly and very proficiently and quietly and systematically working with someone through their problems? Who's going to do that? I can't do that. I don't have the time or the margin for that. You are. And when you're done with the externals and the acquaintances, you go to the next group. You go to Samaria. Samaria, pastor. That's like North Hollywood. No ho, right? Like, no go. Church, if this message tells me anything, we also need a serious change of perspective on what God is looking for in the kingdom of God. Right? We, I think we've seriously confused what God is looking for in the church. Like, we in the church want to go find other people that look like us, that eat like us, that talk like us, and then invite those people to be like us. Is that what the church is called to be? This guy Saul that's just being goaded with the word of the Lord. This guy Saul is, is everything that's not like the church. He's on the other, other side of town where every day they wake up and scheme. They're scheming against the house of God. And yet at some point, the circle has to move. At some point, our faith has to move us from comfort of Jerusalem, the comfort of our home church. We have to move. We have to go to people that are Samaritans because we're all Samaritans. Philip's not just going to go to them. He's going to go to them because somebody else went to the Samaritans earlier on. Do you remember who went to Samaritan earlier on? The guy on the cross, right? He met this woman at the well, and the woman at the well had an interesting conversation, and he didn't say, hey, check that off. My talk to a Samaritan today. And she's like, I perceive there's something different about you. Of course there's something different. He's the Messiah, right? And she invites him back in, and he goes. And Samaritans hear for the first time. That seed has been planted in them, in them years before. And Philip's about to go on the first evangelistic mission first. Remember, he's the first deacon. Stephen was the first martyr. Now Philip is going to be the first evangelist. And where does he go? Samaria. But, but in the scope of circles, that's not Jerusalem. No, because they just got booted from Jerusalem, right? They just got scattered from Jerusalem. But it's not scattered like this. This is the Lord putting seeds where he wants those seeds to go, right? Because he controls the wind. There's nothing random about our God. 
Well, I'm here this morning and it's pretty random. No, it's not random. I don't believe in random. There's no, oh, today you're here, right? We don't have karma. We don't have random. We have a loving God who wants something from us, who needs something from us, who's designed us specifically to do something, and he's trying to point us in that direction and say, I need you to go. I need you to do that because I've designed you specifically to do that. But Samaria... I hear them saying, as Philip, who recruited Nathaniel, Nazareth? Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? The Messiah does. He did. Church, we need to go to the politician, to the new age, to the woke, to that special neighbor that makes you so angry that when you see them, you can't wait to open your garage and close it. And we all have one. Every neighborhood since the beginning of time has that neighbor. And I want to tell you something. Not only does the church have one, but they live next door. And me and that neighbor hugged two weeks ago. Hugged. Because I've spent five years eating crow, humbling myself before them, taking anything and everything they have to throw at the church because I realized... Are they really mad at me? Are they really mad at Eric? Are they really mad at Pastor Lee? Are they really mad at the church? Who are they mad at? Because he's goading them, right? Because he's telling them, I am real. And this miserable, angry, bitter life that you're living is not what I intended for human beings. And so this happy-go-lucky California boy, or whatever she calls me, and then I come over there, who treats her kindly, offers to carry her groceries from the car. We, we offered as a church to help fix her patio. Every time we offered her something, the response was instantaneously and quickly, no. Like, stay in your lane, sir. But yeah, two weeks ago, nothing more than just another random encounter. I said, you okay? Everything good? Yeah. Did some upgrades on my house and just kind of figuring out if I want to stay here. And I said, well, if you don't stay here, will you at least get a renter that likes the church? <laughs> and she said, no, I'm going to get a rock band. <laughs> and they're going to pay you back for all that noise you've been making in that family room for years. And I said, you know what? There's a good rock band called Striper. I hope they're still out there. <laughs> Bring it on. We got a bunch of old rockers in the church. We'll love it. We started laughing, and I realized something guard was down. I said, can I give you a hug and tell you something? I'm glad you're my neighbor. And she said, yes. And I felt like, where's the TV cameras now, you know? Where's the newspaper? By the way, at the city, at the city, real life, Costa Mesa, this church has a file about this thick. Ask any one of the elders. It's got to be two and a half inches thick over the last 25 years of filed complaints against this church. Yeah, oh, no, I'm, not. I'm here to tell you the truth. I'm telling you this is what it is. It is a stack that we are known for being the church that has that. And yet, I work for the city, I work for the police department, and you know what else is also known? That none of those accusations are true. And we have favor with the city because we have favor with God. But church... It doesn't happen because we stayed in Jerusalem. But Pastor Jeff, that's only a block away. Isn't that Jerusalem? No, that's not my Jerusalem. My Jerusalem is this 8 to 15 people. These people love me. These people respect me. And these people care about me. For the most part, we kind of have a happy agreement. When I'm talking about getting to Samaria, I'm not talking about people who love me. I'm talking about people who actually don't like me. It happens. We all have people who don't like us right? But does God say, treat them differently? No, because there is no such thing as different people. By the way, I don't believe in different anything. You will never hear me mention anything about any of the other aspects that people try to do to delineate or separate people. There's good people, and there's bad people. There's people who love God and are trying to live for him, and there's people who don't like God, and they're trying to live against him, and that's all there is. When you find someone who's mad at you for some other reason other than you're being nice or kind or whatever, for you to take it personal, is, you should just take a deep breath. They're not against us. 
They're against someone in heaven saying, you have value, you have significance, I know you, I built you, and you're not a mistake, and everything about you has significance and purpose, you're just not living it out. Because why? Because you have to take it to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the people you don't like, and now you have to go wherever you go. While you go on vacation to Egypt, and you go wherever you go, you are the ambassador of faith. You don't feel like an ambassador of faith, do you? Because I don't feel like a pastor sometimes. Like, I don't feel worthy of being God's ambassador. That's why I don't like doing communion. Who wants to stand in front of people and say, this is the body of Christ, and this is the blood born? Who wants to do that? Who wants to be mildly responsible for invoking the name of Christ to such a magnitude? If you do, come talk to me, because I don't feel worthy of doing I've been in 30 years in ministry. I don't feel worthy of any of that. But that's what he says. So it has to be true because it's not about my perception of what I think of myself. He said it, that you're the ambassadors. And he said that some of you are going to be more evangelists and some of you are going to be more preachers. But I need both of you to do the work so that the body of Christ can grow and it can move. And what's it going to do? It's going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to move out Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's such a powerful call in our life. It's overwhelming. I completely messed the order of this thing up, <laughs> as I often do when I get fired up. It's okay. Being an evangelist, I pretty much just wanted to get there. The problem with the passages is a couple other things that are really important, so let me backtrack to verse 2. Did you notice that when Stephen died, a couple of people stayed behind devoted men and buried him with great lamentations? Because of yesterday... This was extremely urgent for me to kind of think about. Why is it so embarrassing for us to, to lament and to cry? Why is it so embarrassing for us to be broken? Why is it so hard for us to share feelings, to show vulnerability? These guys lost someone they really loved. These guys lost someone they really cared about. And to that degree, they lamented that. I looked up a couple of quick little facts about it because I'm pretty sure you guys have heard this before, but do you know it's medically proven that if you don't cry, the holding back of tears has two significant things, cardiovascular disease and hypertension. That's, the, that's your reward for thinking somehow that by showing weakness, we lose value. Everything, that's why I say, everything about us is design. Everything about the earth is design, how air, wind, and water works. Everything about everything is designed. And so even the way God has designed his people, he has designed us to grieve the loss of something that's significant, from a, from a pet to a family member to perhaps even a job. I just want to encourage you to find space in your life to have that. If you've if you've gone a distance from feeling like oh, somebody passed or some situation passed and I've just tucked it away and, and kind of made peace with it, maybe you have it. And maybe part of the reason you're the person you are today and some of the joy has kind of left your life is because you still haven't made peace with the fact that it's okay to lament. I want to give you encouragement here from the Word of God. It's okay to lament. Stephen died. Stephen was a good man. And they missed him. And so they took the time to lament. And what was the result of their lament? Did God give them a reprieve and everything calmed down because they had lost someone? No, Saul ravaged the church. The Greek word used for ravaging there is the same word used for how a lion or a tiger consumes its prey. That's ravaging. And so as much as he can invoke a sense, Luke, about what he wanted to explain, he was saying the church was being torn and ripped apart. Purposely, and intensively, and none were spared. Walking into a house, pulling out the men, pulling out the women. Why? Because he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so the same fervency he had against the Lord, one day the Lord will turn for him. And none were spared. I can't help but think of something. Stand in front of the Sanhedrin and have their authorization Saul was not only authorized, but he was lethal. He was ordained by the Sanhedrin to go and perform these tasks. 
And so by the time they got to verse 4, when there's a therefore, I always ask you to ask what it's there for. It's there to let you know that the, the tenacity of which one man had not only destroyed the church, but pushed them out into every known direction. And it seems random, and it seems kind of wild, but one of the things that's not random is this guy who's being goaded, Saul. When the Lord does meet him in chapter 9, which is in a little two more weeks, when the Lord does meet him on the road to Damascus, he's not only going to change this guy's heart, but he's going to allow the same guy who hated and persecuted the church with such fervency to write 13, at least 13 books, maybe 14 if you look at Hebrews. We still don't really officially know Hebrews, but 13 of 27 New Testament books will be written by the one guy whose sole purpose was to destroy the church and anyone and everyone associated with it. Maybe you have that one person in your life right now. Maybe God's specifically bringing someone up in your life right now that you know is the one person you avoid beyond anything else because that one person's passion, it seems like every time they talk to you, is just to goad you. I pray right now that God would allow you to see that person for who they really are and what they really stand for because if they're just being honest to what they know, they need to know the truth. And you need to pray for boldness to witness to them because when he's done, he's going to witness to the Jews, to God-fearing Jews in and around the borders. He's going to witness in synagogues. He's going to witness to Greeks. He's going to witness to pagans. He'll be on Mars Hill by Acts 17. He's going to witness to Roman governors. He's going to witness to Jewish kings. He will even go to an island where as he's witnessing to the islands, he will be bitten by a poisonous snake. That's his reward for starting a fire and sharing God's word. And what happens when the natives see him bitten by the poisonous snake? They think, he's fake, and that's how we get rid of him around here and see you later, and he simply continues to build the fire. He doesn't stop, he doesn't start, and they just look at him like, why aren't you dead? Because God called him out of a life of putting Christians down to a life of being a follower of God. More, super, much more on him to come. Verse 5. So Philip went to Samaria and he began to preach. Now, like I said, Philip was not the, the apostle. Philip the apostle was called in Galilee. He was, um, he was the one who called Nathaniel. And then Philip the apostle ended up preaching in Greek, Greece, Syria, and Asia Minor. Philip the deacon is actually the one you see in chapter 6 of Acts when they're calling those first seven deacons, he's listed right after Stephen, okay? So verse 6, verse 8, and verse 21. And that's important because uh, I want you guys to realize just the power of a deacon and what God has to do with those. So deacons and, and uh, elders, both important, yes. But like I said, he gets to be the first evangelist. I, I, like I said, I mentioned the verse Romans 10, 15. I'm finally back on track now, which is praise God. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. So Philip gets to go to Samaria and preach to them. Remember, the idea was when Jesus met the woman at the well, one of the questions she had was, where do we worship? Right? As Samaritans, we've been kicked out of the Jewish Judaism, and so we're not able to worship in the temple, so we've made our own temple. Now there's two competing temples. Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? And Jesus told her, there is a time coming when you will not worship in a temple, but there was a, there's a time coming when you will worship me direct. And so that's exactly what Philip gets to do. Philip gets to be the fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus left with the Samaritans, that this time was going to come when Jesus would be presented to them. And Philip starts doing miracles. And you're going to see in verse 6, the crowds start paying attention and they start gathering and Philip starts getting momentum. And all of a sudden, all these cultural separations, all these other things that Philip was told about the Samaritans, it breaks down, and Philip just realized, these are people who need Christ. And if they need, they need Christ, I want to give it to them. And once they put their faith in Christ, then we are no different. We are family. Let me get to verse 6 and find out what happens and how we know that the family is actually solidified. Who solidifies it? It says, the crowds were paying attention in one mind so that what was being said by Philip as they saw the signs that he was performing... They were paying attention because God was calling them out and Philip's the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. And so everything that they had been told now comes true. 
The Samaritans are ready, and so the only thing left is for who? John and someone else is going to come down here, and they are going to confirm it. I am losing my place on a regular basis today. Here we go. I'm so sorry. Peter and John in verses 14 through 17, they come down and the prominent apostles come down and confirm what Philip is doing. They see what he has done and they make this proposition. They say, this is actually God's work and the Samaritan's conversion then becomes official. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is prayed over them and all of a sudden, everything that they were once taught about a people group is now made peace with. I want to talk a little bit about what they were actually doing. They were they were putting unclean spirits out, and it says, when the unclean spirit came out, they came out shouting with a loud voice. Now, for those of you who are not comfortable with spirit worlds and spirit things, I understand. But the spirit world is real, right? If we believe that angels are real, then we have to believe that demons are real. And because of that, I want to encourage you to understand what the Bible actually teaches about this. We're not to go challenging them on our own volition. We don't, we don't seek that out to challenge it. But if it does come our way, if the opportunity to have that encounter happens, one of the things that you should know is when the name of Jesus is prayed over a spirit, I found this very interesting. It said that the reason why the demon shouts on the way out is it's acknowledging greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that is the way that demon is simply saying I have no authority over the person whose name is casting me out. Be very cautious about entering into this world because another component of people that have possession or dealing in possession, interesting, and maybe I didn't consider this, people involved in possession often show these signs, deaf, mute, and blind. Okay, I'm, I'm always really curious about when God's word says something, deaf. If they're deaf, then they can't hear the name of Jesus, right? If I, can, if I can effectively impede someone from hearing, then that affects my ability to speak the truth of Jesus into that person's life to the same degree. If they're mute and they can't speak, then even if they hear the name of Jesus and they want to evoke the name of Jesus to invite Jesus in, they're affected to that degree. And ultimately, if they're blind, they can't see Jesus acting out in someone in front of them. So they are trapped in what? Within themselves. To that avail, it is said, people that are deaf, mute, and blind often fall into madness. Well, I think it explains why you fall into madness, because without a way out of the jail that your body has now created, then you're left inside of your own thoughts. Can you imagine being trapped in your own thoughts? Any of you have weird thoughts driving down the road, wake up in the morning watching TV, and all of a sudden you just have a random weird thought, and you're like, where did that come from? Who am I? Like, what is going on? Where did I see that? How did that even get in my brain? Imagine just that kind of mi mindset, being trapped in that mindset and never being able to get out. So when a miracle of God is being evoked, when Philip is actually pulling these, drawing these demons out, it's not just a physical affirmation, it's a spiritual affirmation. And I would just encourage you this. I believe that God still does miracles. I believe he's been doing miracles from the beginning. I believe he will do them at the very end of time. But to the avail that a miracle is to establish a human being, I don't think so. I think miracles were meant for an individual to have something miraculous happen to them so that they could see Jesus for who he is. Right? Because I still believe every salvation is a miracle. I really do. And so to that avail, each time a demon is pulled, each time a paralyzed person is healed, what is Philip actually doing? He's doing no, nothing different than what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He healed the paralyzed and he healed the lame, right? I love the fact that these guys aren't trying to rethink the wheel. A lot of times we try to rethink what we're going to do and do something clever and new. They're just doing what Jesus did. With, there's nothing new under the sun anyways, church. Let's let that go. Let's just do what Jesus did. When we see the need, try to address it. And to that, as he's doing that, and he's drawing these demons out, the people are, are being drawn in, and there's great, great 
great belief starting to happen. I have been involved with some of this stuff in my life, and I can tell you this. It's not the kind of thing you want to challenge, but if you ever get in that situation, do not be alone. Make sure you have someone on your left and someone on your right, and just make sure you're in a good place to realize something. Be careful what you ask for, right? If you've never seen darkness, if you've never seen oppression, and you actually face it one day, be careful, okay? Just be careful to know that it exists, and, and God is with you. But if you have to stand, you better pray for boldness, and you better be prepared to say, hey, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, unclean spirit. In the name of Jesus, you got to go. Oppression exists today. People today, I work in the city, I can tell you, we drive around, and the people today are, are suffering madness. Madness is all around us. A lot of people are not on the streets because they want to. Some of them are on the streets because there is no other way out for them. The help they need will never be found in the resources that are available in a bag of food or a clean t-shirt. It's just not what they need. What they need is the saving, miraculous power of a saver. And if we don't offer them Jesus to that avail, they'll be trapped. So how does it finish? It finishes in verse 8 by simply saying, there was great rejoicing in the city. Why wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't there be great rejoicing anywhere where the kingdom of God is growing? If the kingdom of God is moving and you're part of it and you're seeing the lost come to Christ, if you're seeing people be baptized, if you're seeing families be regenerated, if you're seeing marriages being restored, if you're seeing people that have issues and all of a sudden there's reconciliation, if you're seeing the kingdom of God move, why wouldn't there be joy? Well, the Samaritans in particular, they just found out that even though there were two temples, it didn't matter where they worshipped anymore. They could worship God. They could be part of the Jewish family that they always wanted to be. It wasn't their fault that they were taken over by the Assyrians. They didn't have much of a choice in a lot of different things. And to the degree they had a choice, they made a bad decision. And sometimes in life, church, we make bad decisions and we got to make peace with it. But it doesn't stop us from celebrating who Christ is. We can celebrate who Christ is anywhere we are. Even today, we don't need a temple to worship, right? We don't need the ark to worship. We can worship God anywhere, anytime, and we can stop what we're doing and simply acknowledge, Lord, this is what I got today. Use it for the kingdom. And he's happy to do that. And I just want to encourage you, if joy has left your life, if joy has officially left the building of your life, then once again this morning, for those who have paid this incredible price and dispersed the word of God. May the, may the word of God be your source of encouragement. May the word of God be that forever anchor in your life that as the waves and the sea bounce you up and down every day. From, like I said, yesterday we started with a, a celebration of life to a wedding. And by the end of the day, I, just, I couldn't help but think of one thing. It's a temporal, fragile life that we're living, right? But in the same sense, God has still called us to be in it. We're, we're here to do something very specific. And so even though my table setting last night was random, the people I sat with, I made every effort to jump into conversation with them. I made every effort I could to pour myself into their lives. It just so happened that one of the boys was a baseball player for a um, baseball team. And somehow hanging out with him, when he found out that I was the gentleman's pastor, reminded him that he was away from home at this college here in Los Angeles playing baseball, and he thought and started thinking, where's my pastor? Where's my church? And even though the event was going on and all this stuff, I found as the night went on, this individual was kind of standing by me, and I just kind of just kept talking to him. And I realized something. Like, I was a surrogate father for one hour to a strange baseball player, and I was blessed. I didn't change his life. I don't know that I did anything significant, anything at anything, but I was available for the kingdom of God to be used in someone else's joyous event. And for that, God allowed me to walk alongside someone for the moment that I was with him and pour into this individual and share with him the hope that is Christ. My oikos expanded, my world enlightened, and the last thing he said to me is, would you help me find a church here in Los Angeles? I need to, I need to go back to church while I'm playing baseball for the next two years. 
and it's, it's okay, it's not, it's not clapworthy, it's just, is that really, li- I mean, in the scope of everything that's going to happen today, is that really life-changing? And I want you guys to agree, it is, because that's what we do. That's what the hope that we bring, that the randomness of this life, there's nothing random about that. When God inserts you to go down to, to Mexico and to be in some, you know, hotel or whatever, wherever you are, you are the ambassador for Christ. You have a chance to see yourself in a different capacity and you don't have enemies. Nobody hates you. They hate him. And because we love him, they hate us. But for us to take that personal, it's not a sin against us to hate me. You don't have to like me, but I'm concerned if you don't like him because one day it will be Jesus or hell. And one day that sign will be correct, but I don't know if the person who placed that sign is making consideration that how will they know? It said, blessed are the feet of those who come. Blessed are the feet of those who go. And church, we need to go. Sherry said, ready, said, go. She, She couldn't have been any more correct. We need to go. You need to get back into inviting your friends to church. You need to get back inviting your friends to small group. You need to get back to praying with your spouse. If you're not praying with your spouse every morning, if, we just need to get back to the basics of faith. And when we do that, God will restore that simple, clear-cut vision that has been there for the church from the very beginning, that no matter what you're doing, no matter why you're doing it, no matter who you're doing it with, you do it for the Lord. And if you do it for the Lord then the results is between him and them. And there'll be peace in your heart. And the joy of the Lord will become that spring once again so that just like these people are rejoicing in the city and there's happiness once again in the city, the happiness will be restored in your life when you can return to the fact that even though it makes no sense to me, Lord, I will praise you. Even though this neighbor has done everything he can to destroy my neighborhood, I will show kindness. Because even when I'm not worthy, you deem me worthy. So may I be that ambassador of faith to my world around me. May I be that light into the world so that one day, like we did yesterday for John, even if someone requests that you keep it on the down low, keep the religion side of your passing on the down low because there'll be a lot of people here that are not necessarily going to be religious. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't stop it. It just kept bubbling out. It just kept flowing out. And the more his workers talked and the more his dad talked and the more brother talked and the more, it couldn't stop who John Whiteman was. So I think that's something that we can all from Merv to Gene, both of those guys were talking about yesterday to John, to even Ben and uh, Tom racing up here to speak. That was also a great moment yesterday, if you missed that. The 96-year-old was racing the 85-year-old for the stage (laughs) to claim how good God was about this man that they loved. Keep it simple, church. Let's not make this overly complex. Uh, Whoever I was talking to this morning, stop overthinking. Not helping, okay? Let's start underthinking. Let's go back and just pray for boldness. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. In my own head, I'm becoming deaf, mute, and blind. And the madness of my own life is trapping me. Jesus, I proclaim that name over my life. Free me from my own self. Sometimes it's us. Free me from myself so that I can get back in the game. Because I got to get back into the game. Jerusalem's waiting. If you haven't even started with your home circle, that 8 to 15, if they don't know Christ, it's waiting for you. You got work to do. You got to get going again. And then once you get going, like I said, it's going to spread out. You're going to keep going. And as soon as you lead someone to the Lord, or as soon as someone gets back into faith, or as soon as a relationship is reconciled, you're going to feel that restorative wind blow back in your sails again. You're going to be like, ah, that's what it feels like. Church, that's what it felt like for me when I saw new volunteers, people that I'd never seen volunteer. When I saw new people in that building at VBS, that's what it felt like to me. The church is coming back. The church is fighting back. People are fighting for faith. Again, may we never lose hope of the simplistic call of faith. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Let me pray. Father God, this morning, as well as every morning, is an opportunity to do as Joshua said and choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, Joshua proclaimed, we're going to serve the Lord. And I can't help but think about 
all the different patriarchs that have gone before us, all the different legends of faith that have lived out their faith as transparently as they could. Some of these people have failed so miserably, and you'd think, just call it a day and go hide. Find some mountain hideaway and change your name. Yet that's not the case. There was restoration in the name of Jesus. There was hope in the name of Jesus. And no matter what some brothers and sisters did to kick their faith to the curb, Father, you picked them back up, you dusted them off, and you sent them back to the front door, and you said, go and make and baptize and teach and do this all in my name. And when you arrive at the door, they will see you, and they will think, man, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Father, regardless of how the world thinks, regardless of how that one neighbor or that fellow co-worker or that individual who's just been goading us, Father, I pray for the strength to receive that goad and not bite back at the hands who need you so desperately. But Father, may we show them a faith. May we show them a Jesus who loved the world so much that he forgave them as they beat him. He forgave them as they hung him on a cross. And those words echoed so deeply that Stephen picked those words back up and said, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Father, the lost around us that are going to hell do not understand what they're actually committing themselves to. Forgive them, Father. Send someone to them. May our connections be used for the kingdom and the glory of God. We ask it in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.
God bless you, church. Yeah, thank you guys for coming today. If you have any questions you want to stay afterwards for prayer, I'm available. There's also connection cards in the back. If you have any prayer requests, you can turn those in at the back of the box. Find somebody to love. God bless you all. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for coming today.